the Lord wants Ezekiel to proclaim. It is a parable about a boiling pot, followed by a sad announcement that will once again burden the prophet Ezekiel in a most personal and painful way. But now the prophecies recorded in the four previous chapters, from chapters 20 to 23, seem to have all been given and delivered in the seventh year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. If you go back to chapter 20, verse 1, just for a moment, I want you to notice the date or the, the time frame given, because we got a time frame in verse 1 of chapter 24 as well. So the time frame in verse 1 of chapter 20 says, And it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, speaking, of course, of the year of the king, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. So when you compare the, the time frame, nearly two and a half years later, the message of chapter 24 is delivered, and the message is very clear. Despite all the optimistic promises made by false prophets who had declared that the scattered families of Judah would return shortly and in peace to the land, and remember what they were saying. They, the, the false prophets were saying, listen, you're not going to be in Babylon very long. So don't buy houses, don't buy land, don't, don't build anything because God's going to just bring you out and he's going to bring you home and, and everything's going to be well. Everything's going to be at peace. Now that sounds very familiar to what we hear about things happening nowadays, especially when we compare the, the end time prophecies in the New Testament of people crying out peace and safety, yet sudden destruction is going to come. So we see that this mirror image of, of the prophetic in the Old Testament being mirrored in the New Testament, which is telling us something about prophecy. What we see in the Old Testament taking place is just a near prophecy to the things happening then, but giving further uh, prophecy for a later time. And those things are the things that concern us in the days and time in which we live. So the conditions were growing worse and worse, yet the prophets were saying they're getting better and better. So which prophets are you going to listen to? The prophets of God, the prophets uh, like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, uh, who are all around the same uh, time period, were saying, listen to God. He, he's going to judge you if you don't get right with him. The other prophets were saying, no, no, don't listen to them. So that's, <laughs> that's happening today. We've got people in the church saying, hey, listen, you can believe whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. Really? I'd rather do what God wants us to do. And I think that if we get into the word of God, we're going to realize that many times we're, we're on the precipice, or we're on the edge of falling over into, into ways that uh, would be displeasing to God rather than pleasing to the Lord. So the Lord had told them time and time again that judgment was coming. Prophet after prophet was sent, and the people mocked them, and, and they refused to listen to the true prophets. So now the day had arrived, the very day. And, and, and God tells Jeremiah, on this day, he says, mark it down. Like he tells him, take out your calendar and circle that day. This day right here, this is the day of judgment. Judgment has come, and the Babylonians are knocking at your door. Now, look at the comparison here with 2 Kings chapter 25, because in 2 Kings 25, we actually see the very same dates mentioned here. It came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, 
in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host against Jerusalem, and pitched against it, and they built forts against it round about. Now, this was not Ezekiel writing this. So God had given him this date to write down and to mark in Babylon. And again, there were no, you know, it would take weeks, if not a, a month or so, to get the same news across between Jerusalem and Babylon. So Ezekiel was receiving this information from the Lord himself. It wasn't by telegraph, telephone, or any other means of communicating this truth over that tremendous distance. Again, Ezekiel was in Babylon, not in Jerusalem. God is telling him to tell the people there in Babylon, today is the day. Everything that I've been telling you is going to happen today. The siege has started in Jerusalem. It would take, again, at least two weeks to confirm, but the Lord had never failed in being accurate in all of his assessments. The Lord had never failed in, in being accurate in his judgments and, and everything else that the Lord had said to them. So the Lord really is indeed the author of his word. He's always the author of his word. It's not someone writing for God. It's God saying, listen, Ezekiel, this is happening today. As I speak, this is happening. And once again, the prophet Ezekiel is called upon to act out the message. You know, many times the prophets had to act out the things that God wanted to say to the people so the people could see it with their eyes and not just hear it with their ears. So he, he, Ezekiel is called upon to act out this message that God was giving the people by going and getting a pot and pouring water into this pot. He was then to put the choicest piece, uh, pieces of meats and bones into the pot. Like if he's going to make this great stew, he piled wood under the pot and set fire to it. And both the meat and the bones were to be cooked until the boiling water consumed them. The parable was brief, and the parable was simple. But the interpretation was earth-shattering. The pot represented the city of Jerusalem. The Lord called it the bloody city, because it was full of bloodshed and murder. And we've talked about that many times over the past 25 chapters or so. But it wasn't the only charge that God had against his people. The Lord was also saying that the city was full of scum, full of rust, a picture of sin and corruption. The pot was layered with the scum so much so that the scum was clinging, clinging to the pot. Which means that Jerusalem was so encrusted with sin and corruption that it could not get rid of the scum. You bake something in for that long that clings to the pot and you can't clean it, what do you normally do with a pot? You throw it away no good anymore. I'm not going to ask any of you this. I'll tell you I've done it. You leave something on the stove and you let it go for a while and then you get distracted and you go away, right? And then you come back and it's like, ah! You just throw the whole pot away. You know, it's just, It happens, doesn't it? 
I am, I, I'm not the only one, right? <laughs> the pot was layered with what is called scum. That's a nasty word, isn't it? But there's an irony here. I want you to consider the irony. Because back in Ezekiel chapter 11, the Lord quoted a popular saying heard around Jerusalem in the years after the first Judean exile of 598 BC and before the great exile in 586. And I want to remind you of it that it's taking place there in verses 2 and 3 of Ezekiel 11, where it says, Then said he unto me, Son of man, these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in this city, which say, It is not near, let us build houses. And then notice the last phrase. This city is the cauldron or pot. This city is the cauldron and we be the flesh. Now, remember this. That what they're saying is Jerusalem is the pot and we are the choicest meat. A little different than what we're seeing in verse 24. I mean in chapter 24. This was a saying that gave them comfort. They were the choice meat intended for the pot which is Jerusalem. In other words, they were the best. As opposed, by the way, as opposed to the discarded byproducts, who if, if, if we didn't make it clear back then, let's make it clear now, the byproducts or the discarded byproducts were those that were taken into exile into Babylon back in 596. That's, that's kind of a, a terrible thing to say, or 598, terrible thing to say about your, your fellow Jews, your brothers, your sisters. So they were proud to still be in the city. Proud to be chosen to stay in the cauldron of Jerusalem. But now the parable in chapter 24, based on the same imagery, condemned rather than reassured the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is a condemnation. You think you're so good, the problem is you're, you're no better than this scum. So the Lord has turned the people saying 180 degrees around. The pot of chapter 24 is not the protective environment the people's metaphor implied. It was now the place of destruction. And the people were getting an object lesson through Ezekiel's acting out of taking this pot and, and doing exactly what God told them. Light a fire under it. Isn't it interesting that he said, put some bones underneath in the fire as well. That gives an indication, a picture of, of complete destruction. And then we read on in verse 6 of our text in Ezekiel 24, Wherefore thus saith the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is therein, and whose scum is not going out of it. 
Bring it out piece by piece. Let no lot fall upon it. For her blood is in the midst of her. She set it upon the top of a rock. She poured it not upon the ground to cover it with dust, that it might cause fury to come up to take vengeance. I have set her blood upon the top of a rock that it should not be covered. So what we need to understand is that the scum is, no, is, is anything but ordinary. It's not an ordinary scum. Uh, it is more in line with poisonous, rusty scum. I think in some translations, I think it does say rust. But if you, if you know a little bit about rust, you know the, the quality of, of something that rusts carries with it some, some, actually some kind of poisonous quality. If, uh, if you get cut with something that is rusty, you have to have all kinds of shots, you know, and uh, whatever you have to do because it's, it's, it's potentially uh, very harmful. But that's, a, that's quite a description of the people's all-pervading wickedness. This is what their wickedness was like. It was like it was just like something that could cut you and, and then hurt you for the rest of your life, maybe even kill you. Those kinds of infections have actually killed people. The content of the pot was to be brought out piece by piece. As our text says, the idea here was to say that the Lord would destroy the people of the city, not all at the same time, but by a series of successive attacks, which is exactly how the Babylonians went into the city. And then the fact that no lot was to fall on it, on the pieces and all, refers to pre previous carrying away of captives when lots were cast to settle who were to go and who, would, and who would stay. You can see this throughout the scriptures where it says that certain lots were cast, you know, to see who's going to stay in the city of Jerusalem in the, early, uh, in the earlier exile and who was going to go to Babylon. The same thing happened when in the northern kingdom, Lots were cast to see who was going to stay in Samaria and who was going to go to Assyria. And in other situations as well throughout the scripture. So not all alike were to be cast out. Now I should say all alike were, were to be cast out without distinction, rank, age, or sex. You know, in other words, no lots. You just, you're just going. Well, the city's going to be destroyed. Verses 7 and 8 refer to the bloody city that has shed blood that still cries out for retribution. Cries out for retribution. We see this in the scriptures too. Blood cries out. We're told that it is on, the, on top of a rock and not sunk into the ground. And that's, that's significant because in other words the crimes of Jerusalem cannot go unpunished and they cannot be hidden. And, and let me just give you an example of that. Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. God approaches Cain and says, what, where's your brother? And then we hear those infamous words of Cain. Well, who am I? My brother's keeper. And in Genesis 4 verse 10, right after he says that, God says to him, what, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. So even if the blood of Jerusalem's people that have been murdered and, and killed by their own 
there in the city had in some way been hidden somehow, God would have said, hey, I still hear it. Same thing. Except that it's very clear now that, that you know, the Lord says, no, the blood's not going to go into the ground. It's going to stay on top. It's going to be clear for all to see what you've done. But I've seen. And I'm not going to stay quiet about it. And you're not getting away with this. We've touched upon certain prophecies in Hosea, Hosea chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, where it says, when I would have healed Israel, and this is the Lord speaking, when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered and the wickedness of Samaria, for they commit falsehood, and the thief cometh in, and the troop of robbers spoileth without, and they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. So God is saying, look, I, I, I remember everything that you're doing. Now, it says their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. That's about his people in the north. Well, north, south, east, and west, God knows and God sees. And God hears the blood of the ones crying out for, crying out for retribution, crying out for justice, crying out for judgment. Like the blood of... Abel crying out to God. We can't get away with it. Whatever it is. And so with that in mind, there, there comes that certainty of judgment in the next portion, verses 9 through 14 of Ezekiel 24. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. You know, when, when God begins to declare woes upon people. I mean, God is, is, is following through. Woe to you. We even hear Jesus use that very same language with the Pharisees. Late in his ministry. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He calls them out. You go out into the streets, you know, you got, you got your robes, you got your, you got your phylacteries, your little boxes with, with the scriptures within. You go out, pray aloud in the streets. He says, but inside your, your whitewashed tombs, full of dead men's bones. The Lord declares a woe. You better watch out. Woe to the bloody city. I will even make the pile for fire great. The pile for fire is actually a pyre, P-Y-R-E. If you know what a pyre is, it is a place where uh, sometimes uh, uh, bodies were taken and placed upon a, a, a platform of, of sorts, and, uh, and that's the pyre. Underneath was a fire, and, you know, they would... They would consume the, the body that way. Uh, in some cultures, that was the way that they did their funerals. Heap on wood, it says. Kindle the fire, consume the flesh, and spice it well, and let the bones be burned. Then set it empty upon the coals thereof, that the brass of it, or the bronze actually of it, may be hot and may burn, and that the filthiness of it may be molten in it, 
that the scum of it may be consumed. So God is going to judge even to the destruction of the scum. She hath wearied herself with lies, and her great scum went not forth out of her. Her scum shall be in the fire. In thy filthiness is lewdness, which suggests, of course, in a great way, the the very sexual sins that were being committed by by the children of Judah. In In thy filthiness is lewdness, because I have purged thee, and thou wast not purged. Thou shalt not be purged from thy filthiness any more till I have caused my fury to rest upon thee. I have done everything I can to warn you, to help you, to be there if you would repent. But now, all that's left is my fury. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not go back. Neither will I spare, neither will I repent. According to thy ways and according to thy doings shall they judge thee, saith the Lord God. What judges them? Their ways. You notice that? Their ways will judge them. I was telling somebody the other day when they were talking about how people get into trouble nowadays. But man judges people, you know. Well, let's, let's remember this. And, and it's pretty clear in, in, in books like the book of Proverbs, you know, that it, it says, you know, if a person sets a snare for someone, well, that snare is going to be theirs. They're going to be caught by their own snare. Eventually, their sins will, be, will catch up with them. Sins will catch up with you. So the Lord says, according to your ways, according to your doings, shall they judge thee. Your your sins will judge you, saith the Lord God. The Lord, in in speaking of Jerusalem and her people, said he was going to make them, as I said, a pyre, a combustible heap for the burning of dead bodies. Why? Because they refused to repent. Repent. And because they refused to repent, the Lord tried to, you know, as as it says, he tried to purge the wickedness out of them, and they refused to listen, and they refused to change. Their captivity was, to some extent, a purging. But the problem was not so much with those in captivity, even though they had their problems. We've talked about this. The people in Babylon, there 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 was a remnant there, yes, of believers, but there were also a lot of people that, you know, they... They were waiting to go back to Jerusalem with, because of the false prophets. God says that's not going to happen. Jeremiah said, I'm going to have you there for 70 years, so get in there and settle down and go through that time. That's a purging. But now you go beyond the purging to do what? Well, you're not being purged because your mind is still in the same place and you're not repenting of your sins. So now... The fury has to come. This is the reason why we need to remember that God is a righteous God and a just God. Because he'll never do anything unjustly. Never. There's not going to be one person who stands in front of God, whether it be even before the throne, uh, before the... uh, uh, 
bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, or before the white throne judgment, the great white throne judgment of God. There's not going to be one person that can say, well, you know, Lord, you, you were not fair with me. And there's not going to be one. It's not, it's not going to happen. God will be right and fair. And let's put the word fair out there. God is going to be righteous and he's going to be just because that's what he is. So God even brought upon them judgments of drought and famine, but it did nothing for them. So he said that this, that this judgment by the Babylonians would be so intense that they wouldn't miss it. They would see their sin. Well, I have to tell you that the Lord is no different today. Remember now that God never changes. God is immutable. He never changes. He's always the same. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same, always the same. That means his word is the same. His word never changes. But a lot of people today are trying to change God's word, aren't they? Trying to change it to make, you know, make it fit the, the political correctness of the day and time. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. God's word doesn't change. What was sin 4,000 years ago is sin today. What was sin 2,000 years ago is sin today. What was sin 200 years ago is sin today. So the Lord's no different. He warns us over and over again of our sins, of our ways, and if we continue to go down that path and not listen to him, he would allow his fury to come upon us to get us right with him. I mean, this is what he's trying to do with his own people, get them right with him. And I have to tell you, if he doesn't love us, he would ignore us. If God did not love us, he would ignore us. He just, or he'd just wipe us out. But God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. That hasn't changed. And if you remember what we taught on, on Sunday, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and the promise of a Messiah back in the book of Genesis. And the promise is being given time and again by the prophets of this Messiah. It could only show that God loves his, his creation especially the creation, the part of creation that was after his image. So if he doesn't love us, he'd, he'd ignore us. Take, for instance, when the Apostle Paul rebuked the church in Corinth for ignoring the sin of one of its members who was having relations with his stepmother. I mean, that's, that's wild enough as it is, but... I guess things like that happen, huh? Yeah, they do. And not just on TV and reality TV and all of that stuff. Even though you see some of that today and you're like, oh my God. What's happened to TV? I used to like to watch Leave it to Beaver, man. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. The, the, <laughs> what was it? The, the Nelsons, you know. Uh, am I dating myself a little? Too much, yeah. Okay. Who remembers the Lone Ranger, you know? All right. <laughs> this is crazy. Even back then. Now, how long ago is this? Almost 2,000 years ago. 
Now, what do we see? Sin back then was, you know, is sin today. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 6, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. I mean, not even the Gentiles are doing these things. That one should have his father's wife. Now, the, the, uh, the opinion is by most people that that's probably a stepmother, but, uh, you know, who knows? That's not made clear here. It just says his father's wife, so it's probably a stepmother. But then notice verse 2, and you are puffed up. He's speaking to the church. You are puffed up. You are proud of something here. And have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from you. And I can, I can tell you this, that, that there are certain segments of the church today that would say, look, I mean, we're, we've been kind of liberated now. We have, there's, there's, there's certain things that we can do now. You know, the, the old-fashioned things of the word, you know, we've, we've kind of overcome all of those things now. No, we haven't. I don't want to be overcome by the ways of the world. I want to be overcome by the word of God and by the spirit of God and live by those things because I realize that, you know, if, if, uh, if, if anything, I, I don't want any of us to be judged by God who has given us so much patience. Verse 3, for I verily is absent in, my, in body... But present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has done so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Deliver such a one. Now that, that's, a, that's a pretty hard statement here in the New Testament about what you have to do to somebody who's not paying attention to the word of God. And doing these things with a church that says, hey, we're pretty liberated here. We're in the in crowd in this world, but not with God. He says, your glorying is not good. Notice. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Just that little leaven alone. And some people would say the little leaven was probably that, that guy committing this, this sexual sin with his stepmother. But you better check the context. He says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven, the leaven of you being proud of something like this happening inside this church, leavens the whole lump? Your attitude is poisoning the whole church well consequently by the way this person did repent of his sin and Paul would in 2nd Corinthians chapter 2 encourage the brethren to forgive him and comfort him so you notice how Paul has to walk them through the whole thing you've done wrong you need to get right with God this guy you know they have to, they have to give him up you know kind of take it really put him outside of the church but he repents and comes back and he has to tell him, forgive him, comfort him. So this church, that, you know, when you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 
the beginning of the first Corinthians, this, the first letter, Paul says, you know, you guys are filled with the spirit, you got it, but you got a lot of other problems. You got a whole lot of other problems. So we can't rest on certain laurels. We can't rest on certain issues that we, you know, we're at this kind of church, that kind of, no, no, you know what? We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, under the word of God, humble ourselves as we see what's happened here. So this, this is a significant lesson for us to learn about dealing with sin as we see the day of Jesus Christ approaching now. But Ezekiel is going to be told something that may be very difficult for us to understand here in just a moment. Keep in mind that with Ezekiel and some of the other prophets, their lives were used as an illustration to the people to show them that, you know, their sin. A, a lot, you know. Isaiah went through it. Jeremiah went through it. Ezekiel is, has certainly gone through it. So now listen to this. To awaken them out of their spiritual sleep. God tells Ezekiel something's going to happen. It's a difficult one. Verse 15. Also the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, behold, I, I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. Yet neither shalt thou mourn nor weep, neither shall thy tears run down. In other words, something's going to happen. I don't want you to cry. I don't want you to mourn. I don't want you to weep. I don't want even tears. I don't want to even see tears. And then he says in verse 17, Forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead, bind the tire. By the way, the in the King James, the tire is a, is a turban on the head. Bind the tire of thine head upon thee, and put on thy shoes upon thy feet. In other words, cover what would normally be the, the sign of, of mourning, the, the shaving of the head. Bind the turban around. Don't let him see that. Don't let anybody see it. And put on the shoes upon thy feet. Cover not thy lips. And eat not the bread of men. And by the way, the bread of men is the bread of sorrow. The bread that was brought to the family at the death of someone. So I spake unto the people in the morning and at evening, at even, my wife died. Think about that. And I did in the morning as I was commanded. Would we do what the Lord commanded us? The Lord made it clear what he was going to do. But in a nutshell, he told Ezekiel to preach to the people all day and tell them what was to happen to those in Jerusalem. And in the evening, his wife would die. But please don't get the idea that Ezekiel hated his wife and was looking forward to her going. We're told by the Lord that she was the desire of his eyes, which means he loved her dearly. But why would God do such a thing? Well, first of all, he, he did it to get the people's attention. To get the people's attention. And based on what the Lord told Ezekiel, the prophet doesn't mourn over his wife's death. Second, consider that if asked if she was happy where she was now after this declaration of God. You know, if somebody would ask the wife, are, are, are you happy with this? She'd, she'd probably say she was. I visited a 95-year-old saint this morning at UMC. 
95 years old. <laughs> and I leaned over to hear her, because she, I, I, you know, she was moving, talking to me. And I leaned over, and I don't hear very well anyway, so I leaned over. And she says, first of all, she says, I, I love you. I'm just so glad that you came to see me. And then she said, I'm ready to go home. And I said, well, you know, if that's the Lord's will, yeah, okay, but not, not right now. But right now is a good time for us just to pray and, and, and just enjoy this fellowship and realize that God has given you life for a reason and breath for a reason right now. And, and so you hold on. <laughs> but I understand what you're saying. She's lived a full life. And, you know, they were saying that she has about three months left. I remember someone hearing, uh, being told the same thing, and they lived for a lot longer than, than, than three months, like, like about 12 years. So you never know. You never know. So she would probably say, I'm in the, I'm in the bosom of Abraham, man. I'm okay. See, the problem is we tend to, to look at death as punishment. There are a lot of people that look at death as some kind of punishment. But that is only true for the wicked and not for the child of God. <sighs> Precious in the sight of our Lord is the death of his saints. It says in Psalm 115, verse 16, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Still, still, we're concerned for Ezekiel, whose, whose desire to mourn was stifled by the Lord. I mean, think about it. This has happened before. In Leviticus chapter 10, we, we read the story of Nadav and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. They, they took their own fire to burn the incense unto the Lord instead of getting it from the altar of sacrifice. And the Lord struck them both dead. They, they offered strange fire unto the Lord. And the Lord told Aaron, their father, not to mourn over his sons because the anointing oil was upon him and he needed to minister to the people. So what does that have to do with us? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. The real question for us tonight is how serious are we in our service to Jesus? How serious are we? And understand this, it, do, it doesn't matter what position we may have. We're all servants of the Lord. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're, we're his servants. You know, some of us are pastors, some of us are elders, others of us are just, you know, there's no just. We're, we're, we're what God wants us to be. A nursery worker, a teacher. Somebody who cleans the, the toilets, picks up trash out in the parking lot. We're all serving the Lord. The fact of the matter is we all are supposed to do all of those things. There's no, there's no hierarchy in the church. I see something wrong, I go 
try to fix it. Look, you know, unless I know that I can't do it, then I call somebody who can. <laughs> because I realize there's some gifts I don't have. <laughs> and there are as many that I don't have. But we can't allow our own personal emotions, our difficulties, to interfere with in what we're called to do. If anything, from the scriptures, we're all called to do the work of an evangelist, to tell people about Jesus. We're all called to do that. We're all called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're all called to, you know, to fulfill our ministries, whatever those ministries may be. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord would have us to be Stoics. You know, a Stoic is somebody who doesn't express or show passions or feelings. I mean, this goes way back, you know, uh, centuries to, you know, Greek philosophy and, you know, people saying, you know, well, the only perfection that we can have is, you know, we, we don't smile, we don't, we don't show any emotion, we just, we just stay true to, stay, stay true to ourselves, you know, whatever that means, you know. I guess that's staying true to looking at, you know, meditating on your navel and you know, sitting there thinking that you try to make yourself better in whatever you do. No, the Lord's not telling us to do that. But too often we allow things, sometimes foolish things, to, to neutralize our lives. And, and I don't want any of us to be neutral in the things that God has called us to be. Because sometimes people, people will say, well, you know, I didn't get picked for that position. So, yeah, they get upset. Or they say, my job isn't working out. It's just too difficult. Or, or well, no one's talking to me. Nobody cares of who I am and, and whatnot, which is not true. And then we say, well, I'm not going to go to church anymore if that's the way it's going to be there, or I'm not going to serve in that ministry anymore. I'm not, I'm not even going to read my Bible. And sometimes we don't even have to say it. We just do it. We act differently outside, but then inside we do all the other things that we want to do. So what should be done? Well, I just simply say, set your eyes upon Jesus. Put your eyes on Jesus. Put your eyes and put your hearts on Jesus. And don't get distracted from where the Lord is leading you. You know, that's, see, the major job of the enemy is to get us distracted. To get us looking at the world, to get us looking this way and that way, to go, let us go to the right and to the left, you know. To be worried about every wind of doctrine that comes and being blown in this direction or that direction. And the Lord says, hey, stay on course with me. You know, Jesus is our North Star. Jesus is the one that we continue to look to and to follow and go after him. Jesus is our good shepherd. He's our great shepherd. He's our chief shepherd. We're supposed to be following him. We take too many glances at the world and think, oh, I'm missing something here. With Jesus, you miss nothing. Listen, don't get distracted from where the Lord is leading you. Your calling is important. Whatever that calling is, your calling is important. God's judgments are always good and they're always right. And he's compassionate and will always make a way for you to know his presence and his power. Whenever you struggle, he's there. There's never been a time that, you know, if, if I've, if, you know, we all hit walls. Sometimes we hit walls that, that 
seem to force us into some kind of depression or, or just a, a, a terrible outlook, you know. I mean, when you physically hit a wall, you know, with your head, you know, you kind of like stumble around. I can understand, you know, there for a few minutes. But, you know, when you spiritually hit a wall, we go blind for a second, for a minute, for a time. Then we become too introspective. Then we begin to look at ourselves too much. And the Bible is very clear. You know, we look at ourselves and self is a problem. <laughs> and yet throughout all of the scriptures, there's so many encouragements. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether there, therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. If we stop doing all to the glory of God, are we doing anything good? No. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever it is that you do, do all to the glory of God. Consider Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Consider what Paul says when he says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Do you notice that he's pluralized those two words? Murmurings and disputings. Not only just a little murmur, but a whole bunch of murmurs and a whole bunch of disputings. He says, do without those things. Do all things without murmuring and complaining. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Are we living in a crooked and perverse nation? Yes. Is it ever going to get any better? No. So what are we going to do? But if we stay focused on the Lord, notice the next phrase, among whom you shine as lights in the world. But what is the one problem that Christians do to themselves? They put a bushel basket over their light when they become self-centered. And remember that Jesus in the, in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount said, you're the light of the world. A city upon a hill cannot be hidden. But when you put a bushel basket over the light, well, the, you know, the light is hidden and people aren't going to know where the truth is. What else should we do? Look at verse 16, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, nor neither labored in vain. And sometimes we worry about whether we're making a difference or not. As long as you know what the Lord has you doing, you're going to make a difference. Somewhere, somehow, with someone. You will make a difference. But don't worry. You know, there's people that they like to put notches on their belt because somebody come to the Lord. Well, you know, I led them to the Lord. You know, they've got notches all over their belts. Hey, you know what? You didn't save anybody. God used you with the gifts he's given you. They were his gift given to you. And guess what? The Bible says it is the Lord who adds to the church daily those who are being saved. So get over it and just tell people about Jesus and show people the love of Christ. Uh, Philippians 3 verse 8, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency, the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, refuse that I may win Christ. That's an attitude I think 
every believer has to have. <laughs> the attitude that says, I, I suffer the loss of all things so that I may gain Christ. And then there's Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your, in your minds. Don't ever forget what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. As a man who was all man, now, I know you're going to say, yeah, but he was all God, too. <laughs> yeah, he was. But he humbled himself to do what he did on the cross. And notice it says, who for the joy that was said before him. What's the joy? The cross where he died? Or the joy of the very fact that beyond that cross, three days later, he rose from the dead? Perspective, folks. We need to get that perspective of being focused upon Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the beginning and the end of our faith, the starting line and the finish line of our faith. Okay, I've only got five minutes and five more pages. Okay? We go a little longer, okay? All right. So Ezekiel, getting back to Ezekiel, because he obviously got their attention through the visual illustrations. Because in verse 19, we're told, the people said unto him, Wilt thou not tell us what these things are to us that thou doest so? Will you tell us what it is that you're doing and, and, and what does it all mean to us? And then answered, I answered them, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Speak unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the excellency of your strength, the desire of your eyes, now remember that his wife was the desire of his eyes, but here as he's saying to them as a people, the desire of your eyes was the sanctuary, the holy of holies of the temple, and that which your soul pitieth. And your sons and your daughters whom you have left shall fall by the sword, and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men, and your tires, your turbans shall be upon your heads, and your shoes upon your feet. You shall not mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away for your iniquities, and mourn one toward another. Thus Ezekiel is unto you a sign, according to all that he has done shall you do. And when this cometh, you shall know that I am the Lord God. So what the Lord did to Ezekiel's life on a personal level, he was going to do to the entire nation. Their sons and their daughters, the desire of their eyes would be taken away from them. The temple would be destroyed and this destruction would be so catastrophic that all their grief would be inadequate. They would stand there totally numb and pale at what would happen. And once again, the reason for all of this was to point them back to the Lord. So now what Ezekiel found out was what it meant to be a servant of God. Your life is used for his glory and for his purposes. It is not only living for Christ, it is also about dying with Christ. That's what our lives are about. It's not just living for Christ, it is dying with Christ. Identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are placing our lives on the altar of sacrifice given over to him to use as he 
God sees fit. And thus our lives will be a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto him. And let's close here in verses 25 through 27. Also, thou son of man, shall it not be in the day when I take from them their strength, the joy of their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that whereupon they set their minds, their sons and their daughters, that he that escapeth in that day shall come unto thee to cause thee to hear it with thine ears? In that day shall thy mouth be open to him which is escaped, and thou shalt speak and be no more dumb, and thou shalt be a sign unto them, and they shall know that I am the Lord." So after Ezekiel spoke these words to the people, telling them the destruction was coming, he was silent until these things came to pass. So in Ezekiel 33, let me just read it. It's a few chapters ahead, but, but notice what happens in chapter 33 and verse 21. It says, And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, in the tenth month, in the fifth day of the month, that one that had escaped out of Jerusalem came unto me. Remember, if there's one that escaped, saying the city is smitten, the one who escaped from where? From Jerusalem, from the destruction in Jerusalem, and found his way over to, to, to uh, Babylon. Now the hand of the Lord was upon me in the evening, for he that was escaped came and had opened my mouth until he came to me in the morning, and my mouth was open, and I was no more dumb. So it actually will happen that way. And as God's word came to pass, the prophet once again began to speak forth the truths of God as a witness to those rebellious people. So the key here tonight, the key is learn the lessons. Learn the lessons that God takes us through when we're going through struggles and trials in our lives. Or when we fall and, and, and we're we're struggling with, with our walk or we become so dead to certain things that we just need to take hold of the lessons that God is, is, is trying to get our attention with. And that is why the Lord is showing us the things that we're seeing here in this chapter tonight. Don't, don't place yourself in the boiling point of water. Don't place yourself in hot water. You know, that's an expression people use. Man, I'm in a lot of hot water here. You know when you're in trouble? I'm in a lot of hot water. Well, don't put yourself in hot water. Because, you know, when you put yourself in hot water, you get burned. Uh, it makes kind of a little sense, doesn't it? It makes a lot of sense. But it does happen, doesn't it? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on him. Look to Jesus to be the strength of your life. Let me close with this. Psalm 32, verses 7 through 11. Psalm 32. I'd like to close with something encouraging because I, I really want you to take hold of this, meditate upon it tonight in, in, your, in your closets, in your place where you, where you pray. I don't mean going to your closet. I mean I'm talking about the closet of your heart you know, with, with the Lord. In verse 7 it says, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. And then the psalmist says, Meditate upon that for a while. That's the word Selah. And then verse 8 says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. 
I will guide thee with mine eye. Isn't that a beautiful saying? I will guide you with mine eye. I know one thing about the, the eye of the Lord. The eye of the Lord never goes cross-eyed. Never has cataracts. Never has problems that we have with ours. So it's a good eye to follow. Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Isn't God good to give us that freedom that Jesus talked about when he says, you know, if you trust in him and in his word, that you'll be, you'll be free indeed. Free to do what? Free to honor the Lord, free to serve the Lord, free to worship the Lord. Because you've made that decision in your heart to follow after Christ. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord shall mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. I gotta tell you, it really pays to serve the Lord, doesn't it? I, pays dividends way beyond what we could ever achieve in and of ourselves. God loves us that much. God cares about us that much. And it's interesting that we would go through this one chapter of, of Ezekiel that, you know, when we, when we come upon this chapter, we read upon, you know, what, what God said that he was going to have to go through. But the words that, that, that just, you know, touches your heart are the words when he says, I did as I was commanded. And he was faithful to the Lord. So live every day with the desire to be faithful to the Lord faithful to your calling, faithful to your walk, faithful to the love of Christ, faithful to his word, and, and then give him your day. Give him your day. And let him lead you and guide you. He fills us with his spirit. We are to be spirit-led, not purpose-driven. Spirit-led and led by the Word of God. That will in itself pay endless eternal dividends. Amen? Let's pray.